Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA. We've got a lot coming on today's program. In segment two, we're going to speak with Erin Bohr. She's an economist at the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and she's got some updates for us on how global meat trade is changing around the world with the addition, or in this case, subtraction of import tariffs. She'll give us a feeling as to how that is developing. And then in segment three, Max Fisher, the chief economist of the National Grain and Feed Association will be on. NGFA was really one of the first groups to beat the drum about challenges developing in rail shipping here about a month and a half ago. They've been pushing along with scores of other ag groups to get some action from the Federal Surface Transportation Board. It seems like things are moving. Max is going to give us an update on what his members are encountering as they try to ship things via rail. And finally, at the end of the show, we're going to talk with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. We saw American farmers get more corn and soybeans in the ground. That was reported yesterday on the Crop Progress and Plantings Report. Matt will give us some insight into what that might mean for the markets. As of now, we're seeing corn off about eight cents, beans mixed in their trade, and the wheat market, all three classes down. Chicago, excuse me, KC, the hardest hit down 10 cents right now in the nearby. Before we talk about all of that, however, this is an interesting year. Lots of ag issues are getting their chance in the sun in front of the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS. We're talking Proposition 12 later on this year at SCOTUS. WOTUS, the waters of the U.S. case, will be picked up this fall. And there's the potential that the Supreme Court might be hearing a case on state-specific pesticide labeling. This is currently in development right now, and joining us to give us some more details is Allison Crittenden, She's the Director of Government Affairs at the American Farm Bureau Federation. And Allison, let's start at the beginning of this case. This goes all the way back to that Roundup lawsuit in California, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So the issue originated in a case brought in California, as you mentioned, under the state's so-called failure to warn law uh, by a man who claimed that a health warning should have been placed on containers of, of you know, product containing glyphosate. Um, which we know is very you know widely sold and well-studied herbicide so that was really the root of the issue there wasn't uh he felt that there wasn't an appropriate labeling um per the state's you know failure to warn law and so the ninth circuit court heard this case the uh the the plaintiff was the winner was awarded some damages from bayer and then the court said all right california you need to put this special label on now bayer has asked this to go to the supreme court allison what's happening at this case now um so right now we're waiting to see if the supreme court will take it up um, unfortunately the solicitor general um, has filed a brief making a recommendation that the Supreme Court shouldn't hear it. Um, so we, we don't want that to be the case. So ag groups have sent a letter um, to President Biden, you know, asking for them to withdraw their administration's brief and make sure that, you know, we defend uh, preemption under FIFRA when it comes to potentially false or misleading labeling requirements um, set by state law. All right. This is kind of the crux of the matter, Allison. So I'm going to back us up and kind of walk through this. The Solicitor General, this person works for the Biden administration. They're an executive branch employee. And they they wrote to the Supreme Court and said, nah, it's cool. We want states to set their own pesticide labeling. Is that where they left it? That is where they left it. Um, so the Solicitor General filed the brief on May 10th, basically discouraging the Supreme Court from hearing this case, saying that it's, you know, Find where the the current verdict is. This this couldn't this shouldn't be you know discussed further, um, regardless of the implications. But this reverses years of precedent and policy and allows this very confusing patchwork to potentially develop where there are false and misleading labeling requirements you know on pesticides. Essentially, the brief says that this matter shouldn't be discussed further, and glyphosate and the defense of FIFRA shouldn't get another day in court. Um, so we want to make sure that. You know, this issue does have another day in court and can continue to be discussed. 
Allison, you've mentioned an acronym a few times, FIFRA. Can you explain what FIFRA is and, and how that has sort of run the labeling regime for the past, well, 40 years, I suppose? Yeah, so FIFRA is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. It is the piece of legislation that, um, you know, dictates how pesticides are registered. Um, it ensures that, uh, you know, the, the benefits as well as the, you know, health and environmental impacts of pesticides are accounted for uh, in determining what products come to market and how they're used. FIFRA provides, you know, an opportunity for stakeholders to engage in the comment process. Um, while also, you know, reviewing in a very transparent way um, all of the different scientific studies on a product um, to determine its level of safety um, and what levels of exposure uh, are appropriate, uh, you know, for the environment, for applicators. Um, you know, FIFRA basically determines how EPA regulates pesticides that come to market. Gotcha. It's, it's a level playing field for all 50 states. So, Allison, I understand that American Farm Bureau and scores of other agencies representing agriculture have come together. They've written a letter to the administration urging them to pull this brief back because, talk us through the worst case scenario, what happens if the Supreme Court doesn't pick up this case and review the ruling of the Ninth Circuit? What's the law that stands and what could that mean for pesticide producers or farmers? Well, if yeah, if things don't change based on uh, the, the current outcome, uh, we would lose that certainty on our EPA-approved science-based nationwide labels. Um, you know, current and future crop protection products, you know, glyphosate and beyond, um, could be in jeopardy and subject to some sort of, like, mass tort litigation. Um, another concern is that if, if this isn't reversed, um, this would discourage companies from making and investing in new products um, because the, the cost to get them to market and have them, you know, labeled and this like, very confusing patchwork while also dealing with some of the legal uncertainties um, would, you know, probably make it less lucrative to, to do that. Um, I think it also sets a very dangerous, um, you know, precedent in disincentivizing that innovation, um, but it furthers a false narrative about pesticides when you allow a state label that you know runs in conflict with EPA's very robust determination um, that a product is safe, and then a state label can say, "Well, actually, it's not." Um, and that's another concern that we have is that it would you know be misleading, and I think demonstrate um, or it would create kind of a, a lack of confidence among consumers in these products that we know enable farmers to produce food. Um, in a very sustainable way while also being, you know, cautious of any health concerns. Allison, before we let you go, what's the timeline look like for a Supreme Court decision on whether or not they'll they'll hear this and how can growers get involved? The so SCOTUS will uh, reconvene in June, um, so we would understand kind of their, their viewpoint next steps then. Um, as far as how, you know, very concerned producers can get involved, this isn't a legislative issue per se, but I think it's still important to contact your representatives and your senators and then urge them to reach out to the White House on this issue and ask them to, that, to withdraw that brief. Absolutely. Let's keep these labels as clean and as clear to understand as possible. Thanks to Allison Crittenden, American Farm Bureau Director of Government Affairs. Allison, we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. And folks, stick with us. Aaron Bohr at the U.S. Meat Export Federation will join us next. We'll talk about how meat is changing on its way into Mexico. Stay with us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. 
guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. If you are anything like me and you've gone to the grocery store here over the past year, you have noticed that prices for food have been climbing, well, fairly substantially. We certainly see that reported in all of the economic metrics that get reported by the United States government. But this is a trend we're seeing not just in the United States, but higher food prices are happening around the world. And various countries are adopting different measures to try and bring down the price of food in their home countries. One such way they can do that is by removing blockades on goods that are coming into those countries, be they physical blockades or tariffs that raise the cost of those goods as they come in to their borders. One country that recently made this switch is Mexico, and they did specifically in the meat space. Joining me now to talk about what Mexico is up to is Erin Borer. She's an economist at the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Erin, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Of course. Thanks, Mike. Let's bring us up to speed here on this situation in Mexico. They made an announcement. They're removing tariffs, aren't they, on meat products? Yes. So we have seen Mexico make similar moves in the past. And so it's not totally unprecedented. I guess one difference this time is they are not introducing a TRQ, but simply removing all tariffs on beef, pork, and poultry. And that is just... Um, chilled and frozen cuts. So products that are not included are offals or variety meats and processed products. So it's not all inclusive, but for all of the, the fresh meats, all tariffs are to be eliminated um, for, for the next year, basically. And, you know, this sounds like big news. We think about countries opening the border sands tariffs. That's always good to help move products into that country. But it's a little bit of a twist in Mexico's case, Aaron, because they're already NAFTA members. We're NAFTA, well, not NAFTA, USMCA members. Does the U.S. stand to benefit from this move at all? No, it adds some more competition for us. And as you said, we are already duty-free for all of our meat products across Mexico, U.S., Canada. 
And so I think the real potential changes here are to add a bit more competition in the pork space, and that is Europe. And so European pork has been making inroads in Mexico. If we look back and remember the, the metal tariffs, and so Mexico had retaliatory tariffs on U.S. pork for about a year, from 2018 to 2019. And at that time, they opened a large duty-free quota for pork to try to incentivize you know, other suppliers or diversify their imports. But really, we're just talking about a handful of European countries that are eligible Brazil is still not eligible to export pork or beef to Mexico, so the kind of big obvious one is not an option. And so they were incentivizing more European pork, and so Europe did make some inroads at that time, and they've been shipping. Uh, interestingly, Mexico opened a duty-free quota for pork last year, just 10,000 tons. Europe continued to do some business in, in that within that quota, but Europe has been shipping more on the variety meat side. So still paying a tariff um, of 10 to 15% on those products, and it's 20% generally for pork unless they're within the quota. So Europe's volumes that are more significant are actually still paying a tariff, but they've been making or doing more business on things like stomachs in New Mexico. Um, and the cut business is there, and Europe is more competitive on things like bellies. So we know they can do like Spanish bellies, for example, in New Mexico at zero tariff again through last year's quota and now currently. So it's it's probably hopefully a muted impact, but we know Europe, again, has already been in our space a, a bit, and this gives them another opportunity to ship more European pork cuts into Mexico. You know, a lot of the times when we talk about the meat export regime globally, and we've spoken with the folks at USMEF quite a bit, it takes a lot of work to get product from one country into another. I know USMEF has ground teams running around throughout the world helping get our products into markets. Aaron, as you think about the European move into Mexico beginning there in 2018, do they have that kind of infrastructure that would allow them to grow their market share substantially in Mexico? No, and that remains our comparative advantage, um, of which we actually have several. So we do continue to dominate in that market, and part of it is our proximity uh, and our our integration within North America. So being able to ship those combos of chilled bone-in ham to Mexico, which we need because we don't have the labor, and so we need Mexico to take you know 40% of our ham production. They need the product um, as that affordable raw material and affordable, high-quality meats for their consumers. But yes, our team on the ground is uh, incredible. So our, our offices in Mexico City and Monterey um, work, you know, boots on the ground across the country. And they are, I don't know, it's every day coming up with some new creative ideas, right? So over the past year or, or more, they've been doing, for example, local pairings. And so supporting local products in Mexico, whether it's chocolate or coffee or whatever, and pairing with U.S. beef and pork. Um, they've run beef and pork trucks across the country through COVID when we were kind of limited on what we could do inside. So taking these pork and beef trucks around the country so you could still do samplings and barbecue demos and, you know, just limited with creative creativity in our, our Mexico office. And so we are unique in having that. And again, our, our other advantages on being able to ship, you know, shield products direct into the market, we will continue to dominate the space. But as Gerardo, um, our leaders of our Mexico team say, um, you know, even if they're only doing a few thousand tons, it's taking business away from, you know, someone in the U.S. So he, as he says, it, you know, it takes a little bit of the frosting off the cake when others start to get a bit of our market share. That is a really good point. And Aaron, as you think globally, meat prices have been one of the most impacted by this inflationary run-up. We've seen that here. We've seen this uh, in a lot of places around the world. As you think about what Mexico is doing here, removing their tariffs to get more products into the country, do you see that opportunity developing in other countries around the world? And from an economist perspective, are there any places you'd like to see that do that soon? Oh, for sure. We would we would really like more tariff eliminations in places where we don't already have free trade agreements. Um, I can't say that I see that happening in the meat space. Um, certainly, you know, everyone wanting to be able to increase their imports on the grain side or on the input side seems 
more uh, imminent. But on the meat side, a bit more challenging. Again, Mexico kind of already had this precedent. Uh, other places, not so much. Um, but if we think about places like uh, even the high income markets of ours, uh, Japan, for example, we know we have the trade agreement there, but Japan still has some of the highest beef import duties in the world. They have a weaker yen. Uh, they're having a hard time competing with China for tight global supplies. And it would be an obvious win for us if Japan, for example, eliminated the tariffs. But I say that with a laugh because I, I don't see it happening. Um, but they stick out as, as having high tariffs. But places where it would be even more critical for their consumers are places like the Philippines on the pork side. So Philippines has had tariff reductions in place for the past year because of their African swine fever outbreak and trying to incentivize larger imports. They are also a place that has some of the highest import tariffs in the world, specifically on the pork side. And so they had reduced those tariffs, but they are still uh, in the process of you know, deciding whether to extend because those tariffs actually notched back up, um, I think, just last week. And so now they need to decide, again, what to do with tariffs. And so the Philippines, uh, with, you know, a generally lower income consumer, they already spend a very high share of their income on food. They're still tight on domestic or low on domestic pork production. They still need to incentivize imports. So they're one of the, I guess, obvious examples of where hopefully we see another round of tariff reductions on the pork side. Aaron, we're hearing more and more talk of recession coming soon. Are you nervous about the state of U.S. meat exports as we head through 2022? We definitely see clouds on the horizon, and there are just so many factors impacting, you know, globally. It makes your head spin. So far, demand has sustained. If we just, you know, look at the weekly shipments, for example, on the beef side, it remains incredible. And Last year, I was kind of notching down my forecast. We were very aggressive um, in the prior, in 2020. We knew 2021 was going to be a banner year. And then I got more cautious because the exporters were dealing with the supply chain constraint, which seemed to be overwhelming. So I was just amazed at how strong we ended up finishing. And still today, uh, I, hear, I hear some pessimism. Uh, and I know there are challenges for exporters still, but yet the shipments just keep you know, keep going. So our team here on the with us in San Antonio, they still seem optimistic, but it's going to get more challenging, I'm afraid, as consumers just have less disposable income because of high costs and slowing economic growth. Yep, that inflation takes a little bit out of everybody's pocketbook. Our thanks to Aaron Borer, economist at the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and their spring conference is getting underway this week in San Antonio. So check out usmef.org for updates on that, folks. And stay with us for more AOA when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we see the wheat, corn, and soybean markets reversing lower here as we get into our morning trade. Maybe some profit taking, possibly a correction to the downside as wheat was the upside leader in the overnight trade. Now, of course, the USDA crop progress report showed impressive progress nationwide for corn and soybeans. 72% of corn and 50% planted for soybeans as of Sunday. The problems, though, are still focused on the northwestern Midwest, specifically on the Red River Valley north of Fargo. 
Much of North Dakota's corn lies within this region, as does a notable amount of Minnesota corn, but just 20% of North Dakota corn has been planted and we're running out of time. Another concern is spring wheat planting with just 11% of Minnesota planted and 27% of North Dakota planted as of Sunday. And those two states account for roughly 80% of spring wheat. Now we expect spring wheat to be a priority crop for getting planted. Farmers have an incentive to plant spring wheat after the insurance deadline in most cases, even with the anticipated yield drag. Some will continue to plant spring wheat through the first week to 10 days of June. It's possible we could even see an increase in spring wheat acreage, but we'll have to see a lot of progress over the next two weeks. And we're going to be watching these markets very closely, but it looks like some profit taking so far here this morning. July corn down nine to three quarters, 776 and a half. December down 10 to three quarters, 728 and a quarter. July beans down two and three quarters, 1684 to quarter. November down four to quarter, 1514 and a half. Bean meal down moderately. Bean oil up moderately. July Chicago wheat down 17 to three quarters, 1172 and a quarter. July KC wheat down 20 and a quarter, 1256 and a quarter. July spring wheat down 11 and a half, 1287. Cattle futures are up moderately with August feeders up 222, 167.85. Hogs are lower June down 87, 109.50. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We continue to see economic data coming out that uh, raises some red flags about the health of the economy. S&P Global was out this morning with their flash U.S. Composite PMI Output Index. This tracks the manufacturing and service sectors, and it was down three and a half points month to month from April into May. And uh, they say that this slowdown is the slowest in four months. It was attributed to elevated inflation. Inflationary pressures, of course, those higher prices, weaker demand growth, and importantly, further deterioration in supplier delivery times. These supply chain hiccups, we are not out of the woods yet. One group that has been raising the alarm on this for the past two months is the National Grain and Feed Association. Joining me now is Max Fisher. He's the chief economist with NGFA. And Max, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, two months ago, NGFA really began to raise this issue as you were hearing from members that rail service was starting to decline. Max, take us back a little bit. What has been happening over the past two months with rail service in this country? Um, we've just had a hard time getting grain moved to where it needs to be. You know, largely that means like moving grain from, say, the Midwest to, um, you know, out west, let's say, to the Pacific Northwest for export markets or out to California to you know, to feed dairy cows and so forth. Like, um, it's just, it's just been slower than it, than it should be. And it's resulting in uh, some facilities like out West, um, essentially being shorted on, on the amount of grain that they need and having to shortchange the livestock as a result. And then it also means that we're shortchanging our, our export markets. Right. And these backups and slowdowns roll downhill and they compound on one another. Max, NGFA then raised this issue with the Surface Transportation Board. I know you folks have been in discussions with the, the folks in D.C. about this. Tell me what has happened here over the past two weeks. Is the Surface Transportation Board doing anything? They are. Um, they're doing as much as they can. Um, 
you know, I'd say I'd go back, you know, beyond two weeks. You know, about a month ago, they released like this emergency service order, a revision to their rules, and 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 what that will do is it'll make it um, like in 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 cases where you have a really bad situation, like let's say for example that you're a livestock or poultry feeder and you're not getting in as many uh, grain trains as what you need and and you're having to actually shut down your operations and at risk of you know potentially going you know insolvent as a company um, you can try to you can petition the surface transportation board to allow a whole different railroad to to come in and serve you so uh, let's say you're served by uh, railroad x and they just cannot satisfy you. You can petition to have Railroad Y come in and use Railroad X's track to get grain to you. Now, obviously, this isn't going to be a system-wide um, savior. <laughs> you know, this is just isolated instances, but that's that's one um, example of what the board is trying to do. Now, that seems pretty big to allow another train to use one rail company's tracks. Max, has anything like this ever been done before from the Surface Transportation Board that you're aware of? Yeah, these these rules have been in place. They just haven't, you know, haven't been usable rules. So, you know, it's taken a while. Like you essentially, as a grain shipper receiver, you've had to, you know, prove your case, and it and it hasn't been timely, and and there has not been a timeline set on the railroads to have to uh, prove as to why they should not allow this to happen. And then let's say that you want that alternative railroad carrier to come in. You know, there was no teeth to actually like for the board to direct them to help out in this situation. So, uh, for for various reasons, they may not even want to use the other railroads track. So, um, you know, all the while, you know, you as the receiver who's potentially uh, in really in a really bad place, um, you can't get you know you can't get the the grain or or whatever commodity it may be that you need. So, uh, what these rules would do is they would just try to really help out in really desperate situations to kind of streamline the rules and make them go faster. And it sounds like this is a Band-Aid. It sounds like the Surface Transportation Board admits this is a Band-Aid. Hey, we're just trying to get through this emergency situation with, with grains not flowing. Max, take us out a little bit longer term. Your members are very engaged in these conversations. The infrastructure they need to move grain in and out it takes a long time to plan and install. Are they hopeful that we can get the railroads running back at capacity here later this year, next year? What timeline are they looking at? Well, you know, I, I should say, you know, there's seven major railroads in this country, seven what are called class ones. And of those seven, you know, there are a few that are kind of operating normally. So there's, there's really only four that have, you know, had kind of a hard go of it. And, um, for those four, you know, I've been told, you know, it varies depending on which railroad, but they're all trying to hire, you know, additional people to to work on the railroad, and and that's really what it amounts to for the most part is it's just they're just down on rail labor, and uh, you know, but it takes time to train, it takes time to hire, so I don't, I don't know. I, I've been told for some of them it's going to be at least several months. I mean, this thing could stretch into the fall easily. Boy, and those costs and the, the 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 mental struggles of these plant owners trying to ensure grain availability and shipments getting to where they need to be must be outlandish. Max, you talk to your members quite a bit. They all have been grappling with this to various degrees. How are they dealing with it? Is just everything going by truck? Are they putting backup plans in place? Yeah, uh, well, you know, Worst case scenario, sometimes they're having to shut down facilities. I've, I've heard of several, many facilities that have just had to cease operations because they just don't have the product um, to put through their plant or, or, or the outbound, like they ship their, their product by rail and therefore they're just full. They, they don't have any more space to put their product, so they have to shut. They, either reason could shut you down. Um, so that's worst case scenario. Um, another is a lot of them are you know, trying their best to get enough trucks to make up for a loss of rail capacity. Uh, that's obviously a easier said than done. And even when you can find the trucks, very, very expensive. So, um, I don't know, there's, there's just, you know, we, we essentially just are not running as if of a, as efficient of a grain industry right now as what we'd like to, uh, as what we need to, we're just not up to capacity.
or not. And Max, as an economist, that just has to bother you to no end. I want to, I do want to wonder, as you think about this from the, the standpoint of demand destruction, we know high prices can pull demand down, but so can lack of access to goods and shutting down facilities due to lack of inputs. Do you have a handle on how much demand may have been lost already for corn and soybeans from this uh, rail transport issue? I don't, I don't, I, you know, I know it's sizable, but I do not know how much demand has not been served. So, you know, it's certainly contributing to food price inflation, you know, and you know, as well as I do that when the price of food goes up, you know, people consume less dairy, they consume less meat, you know, what, whatever product it is that is artificially had the price rise on it, they just demand less. So, um, it, it's hard to tell, you know, and this obviously filters back eventually to the producer who's producing the raw ingredients that, you know, so it's, it's, it's tough to tell, but, uh, yeah, we just need to get the supply chain for agriculture, uh, back up to where it needs to be. We certainly do. And Max, I do want to ask you a question. During the crisis, we heard from a lot of folks, predominantly ocean shippers, that other cargo was being prioritized ahead of agricultural cargo. I was wondering, do we see the same thing happening on the rails? Are they prioritizing manufactured goods over agriculture commodities, or is everything being treated the same and just getting poor service? Uh you know, only the railroads know to the, the answer to that question. Um, you know, we have people within the agriculture industry who suspect there may be some of that going on, but uh, we we would not know for sure if that is happening. Okay, that's not a part of the conversation or anything the Surface Transportation Board's going to be dealing with here in the short term. Uh, you know, they're trying to get more data to help them assess the situation so one of the things they've done is they've asked the railroads to on a weekly basis start reporting um, more more information along that line so they can see like how long the trains are sitting when they're moving what they're hauling etc so um, you know there's there's it's been a it has not been transparent enough in the in the past <laughs> and uh, Anyway, this this data, that is one good thing I think that's for sure going to come from this is we're just going to have better rail data moving forward, to, which will help shippers and receivers, you know, plan long term and, and, and just also in the short run. So they know, you know, they'll have a better idea, I guess, as to when they think things are going to get tight and they can make contingency plans based on that. So uh, we're, we're very pleased that the board is requiring more data reporting from the railroads. That is good to hear. That kind of transparency can help point folks in the right direction as these, uh, well, as these snafus start to pop back up. Max, thinking about National Feed and Grain Association, your members around the country heading into this spring, putting transportation troubles to the side, is there optimism in the folks you uh, talked with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, they're, you know, they're excited. Um, you know, they're, running their operations and um you know just you know i don't you know they're <laughs> they're uh they're problem solvers is what they they are so i mean yeah this is this has been challenging and nobody wants this challenge obviously but these the people in the grain industry are are world class uh, they're the, they're the best at solving these issues i, I have a lot of faith in them Absolutely. Folks in agriculture are used to countering setbacks and just jumping right over. Our thanks to Max Fisher, Chief Economist of the National Grain and Feed Association. Max, thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you, Mike. And stick with us. Matt Bennett of agmarket.net will talk markets when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. 
Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining me today is Justin Cauley. He's the Senior Director of Transportation with CHS. Justin, supply chain issues continue to be an ongoing topic of conversation. How is this impacting agriculture? Railroads, barge lines, trucking companies, and many other parts of the supply chain are still dealing with unanticipated demand surges and unprecedented hiring issues. Working a transportation job where you're away from home for weeks at a time is not attractive to many starting in the workforce. And that's making it difficult to keep our supply chains robust with our current growth trajectory. I believe this is not a short-term problem and we need to find ways to either attract people to these roles or find ways to move products with less labor. Justin, from that hiring perspective, how long do you expect these challenges to persist in the supply chain sector? Well, farmers should anticipate that the transportation issues persist for some time. These labor issues we're facing today started prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic merely accelerated the direction allowing labor more remote work opportunities and essentially more flexibility, which isn't possible with many of the supply chain industrial jobs as they exist today. My advice to farmers is to be vigilant to the transportation issues and understand how they may impact your operations. Justin, will the supply chains be ready from a transportation standpoint for farmers' needs this summer? Many of the inputs for industrial equipment and farm equipment are produced overseas, and the long lead times, among other factors, have created tremendous backlogs for a variety of products. Looking at container rates alone, there are some signs that the macro environment is returning to normal, but many are holding their breath about the impact of China's extended COVID lockdowns on the supply chain. Another thing to watch are the labor negotiations happening today at the ports. It's critical that we keep our ports and inland transportation networks fluid. And if you have any questions about how it may impact you, please refer to your local CHS representative for advice. Folks, that's Justin Cauley, Senior Director of Transportation with CHS. And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger, Larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Had some big news in the markets yesterday. It was announced that for the first time in history, China has agreed to buy corn out of Brazil. Well, we're seeing the markets a little weaker today. We're going to talk with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net and see, Matt, did that news from China, is that causing part of the softness in the corn market today? Yeah, you've got to think so. I mean, you know, you look at, for instance, the progress uh, is probably going to play into it a little bit because 72% was just a shade uh, uh, faster than what most people thought the pace was going to be. But there's no question that, uh, you know, you haven't had, the, I guess, the um, uh, the prospects, you know, of, of trying to uh, buy more off of Brazil here the last few years, especially as China started buying more and more corn. And so it wasn't really a threat, and then all of a sudden, you know, they signed this agreement. So there's no question that uh, the market's going to be paying attention to that. It's been interesting to see the ranges, for instance, whether you're talking uh, corn, beans, wheat, uh, especially uh, beans and wheat. You know, you've had pretty good ranges in the markets already today. Yeah, we certainly have. And just on that Brazil-China deal, 10 million metric tons, I believe, is what China said they're willing to purchase out of Brazil. Matt, how much does that change the global balance sheet? Well, I mean, there's no question the global balance sheet, uh, in my opinion, you know, whenever you look at it to the USDA's lens, I have felt like uh, it was one of the more interesting uh, uh, set of numbers that's put together. I mean, I don't want their job, Mike, not my stretch of the imagination, but I've felt like the global balance sheet was a, a bit of a head scratcher at times. You know, we're basically saying that uh, at least two-thirds of the global corn is in China alone, and then China's been out here last year and this year again, you know, buying a fair amount of corn. Now, are they hoarding? Are they uh, just burnt through supplies? I mean, whenever you look at what they've raised versus what they've consumed, there's no question that uh, they have drawn down their own reserves. And so uh, I, I'm hesitant to think that they have as much corn on hand as what the USDA says. But long story short, you start taking 10 million out of the global balance sheet for what is available on the export market, and there's, uh, there's no question that it's tightening things up. It's tightening things up. The crop is getting into the ground. We're seeing prices soften. What's your next what what is your next target here in the corn market, Matt? You know, I think once you get the crop planted and it's up and going, there's no doubt that as a producer, you know, as, as you get more, I guess, uh, you feel better about what kind of crop you're going to have coming certainly need to be hedging off some risk as you go. Now, you look at December corn, we're still up here at 730. I mean, these are price levels we only dream of a lot of years, but producers are hesitant because we've been 30 cents higher than this. Now, I think that's uh, uh, something that we've got to be able to get uh, get over because uh, the bottom line is, Mike, let's say you, know, you feel like you had a really good planting season. I think a lot of folks said, hey, it was a little late but it came right out of the ground. It's got a really good stand, it's uniform, it looks solid, the color's good. If that's the case and you're feeling good about your prospects, you gotta understand, you know, what what is a $7.30 corn? I mean, with a typical basis here, you know, in the I States, for instance, you're probably looking at a lot of $7 corn. What kind of profit margins does that look like? And I mean, it's incredible. So I don't know that I've got a target necessarily. What I've got is more uh, a target of, hey, what percentage do I want to be sold and, and how much more am I willing to go as the market gets, uh, you know, as the crop gets a little bit farther along. Now, I think you get in the western corn belt, there's no question, uh, especially in the dry areas, you've got to be a little hesitant. I've said all along, I want to lock a floor in into this market, and then I want to stay quite flexible because if we do get into a dry spell, you, boy, I don't want to be oversold in a market that could absolutely take off and run away on us. Yeah, there's a lot of wild cards, a lot of potential fireworks baked into this market as we sit here today. Matt, turning our focus over to the wheat market, yesterday's report, we saw winter wheat condition 28%, good to excellent, down from 47% in the five-year average. Winter wheat planting at 49% compared with 85% on the five-year average, and yet wheat's down 10 to 15 cents across the board. What? Where's the bearishness in the wheat market? Well, that's the thing. It's interesting. I mean, uh, to me, I think that everyone kind of knows that the wheat crop is in a bit of trouble. There's no question. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of times whenever you see the corn market down 10 cents, if you can rally the wheat market on a day like that, then you're really getting something done. And so I do think that there's a little bit of spillover weakness, but obviously wheat's losing more ground 
uh, than what corn is. Now, whenever you look, for instance, at wheat over the last, oh, I don't know, few weeks here, you know, we've definitely run up. And, I mean, a lot of folks are saying that we've put a double top in. I don't know that I want to quite say that. I mean, it certainly looks like that on the chart. But my thing is is that we don't know what kind of production we're, we're going to be looking at. Whenever we look at, for instance, the USDA's projections, I think that they're still quite high. And whenever we couple that with the fact that, you know, Mike, for several years we were running 50% or better stocks use ratio on wheat. Nowadays, you know, we're talking that we hope we get to 30. And so, you know, we're looking at a different sort of dynamics in what we're looking at. Even just a year ago, there's a lot of cheap, uh, quote-unquote, cheap feed wheat uh, fed this last year. Whenever corn prices got high, there's no such thing as cheap feed wheat anymore. So this is an interesting market. Yes, we're down today. I don't think that I'm uh, uh, thinking this market's just going to completely fall apart on us. Uh, at the same time, we've had a lot of $12 plus wheat, Minneapolis wheat over 13 at times here lately. And I'll tell you what, uh, those price levels are pretty hard to uh, to pass out. They certainly are. Real quick before we let you go, Matt, beans, November 15, 13. You going to let that go or you want to lock some in here? Yes, I think I'm going to lock some of that in. You know, if I haven't done anything yet, 15, 13 to me is a heck of a price. Uh, anything over $15, most pr- producers have never hedged beans over $15, you know. So uh, we all know that the uh, cost factors aren't near as elevated as what they are with corn, relatively speaking. So, yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely willing to sell some beans over 15 bucks. All right. You heard it here. That's Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. Matt, thanks for joining us. We always appreciate your insights here on AOA. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, bud. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We're going to be talking ethanol with Joe Kekesh, and then we're going to check in with Arlen Suderman of Stonex. So do be sure to tune in Wednesday to AOA. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great day. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. To be the king of the road, you have to fill with the king of diesels. We're talking about Senex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Senex Roadmaster XL even cleans up and prevents injector fouling to keep your trucks out of the shop and on the road. And typical number two diesel? That's always an option the wrong option. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me, you don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info.